Just before we start, our book and discussion this week involve references to violent crime, including a school shooting, which some listeners might find upsetting. Hello, it is Graham Norton here, and I'm delighted to be opening the doors of my book club once again. Come in, take a load off. We're all set with many books to mull over and writers and readers of said books to talk to. And by my side, in a virtual sense, is someone who lives to read and reads to live, the knower of all things library, Alex Clark. I believe it's a, a transatlantic a virtual meeting today. Yes, it is. I'm in New York. I'm actually staying very near the New York Public Library, just in case I run out of books. <laughs> and yes, you will be hunting for a bookshop in Manhattan. Yeah, exactly. So do you know what, Graham? This really did happen. I was about to step onto an eight-hour flight with no book. I had just forgotten to bring a book with me. I had to dash to the airport bookshop. And of course, what did I get? But Richard Osman. It's it's basically all airport bookshops sell, I think. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's certainly at the top of the pile. <laughs> right in front and centre. <laughs> Very much enjoying it, mind. Oh, good. <laughs> of course you are. Everyone is. Everyone is. Well, uh, welcome along and a big, big apple hello to you. Now, our first item of business is our book of the week, Memory Man by David Baldacci, the story of hard-bitten ex-detective Amos Decker, who is trying to solve not one, but two terrible terrible crimes with the help of his extraordinary powers of recall, hence the name of the book, do you see? Here to talk about it are Gavern, who chose it, Cherie, Jeff and Stuart. Hello all. Hi. Hi. And I guess it's a welcome back to Cherie. You've been on foreign shores. I have. I've been with the sloths. In Costa Rica. Home of the sloth, yes. Lovely. Yes, was it yes. just a, ho- a holiday? It was a holiday, although I did have to spend the first half of it reading this book. All right, we'll get to that. <laughs> save yourself, save yourself. And uh, a man on permanent holiday, uh, Stuart, how are things in Orkney? Yeah, they're good. Uh, beautiful day here and a lovely display of Northern Lights last night, which I completely missed due to the fact I was fast asleep. But I think everybody else in Orkney saw it. Well, a special welcome to uh, Jeff. Apparently you've had some problems in the house. What is it? Is it a flood you've had? Ah, yeah. Okay. My 24-year-old decided to run a tap in the top bathroom and then went for a shower in the middle bathroom. And so we had a flood going all the way through the ceiling. I've always wanted a waterbed. I just kind of like (laughs) thought it would be a different sort. Where is he in the in the range of eleven children? Where is the twenty four year old? Oh Lord, uh, probably probably number. <laughs> oh, don't ask me that. Sorry to catch you unawares, Jeff. Uh, I think number nine. He's either number eight or number nine. You should it's, get them um, tattooed. Yeah, 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 on your arm. All right. Well, look. Uh, welcome along. Sit tight. We'll be back to find out whether Memory Man is happily lodged in your brain or whether you cannot wait to forget everything about it. After we've spoken to David Baldacci himself, and after Alex has given us her three of the best, and Alex, I believe there's a continuing whiff of testosterone in the air. Well, in a manner of speaking, I don't know if anybody's noticed, but you know, we're quite interested in what we might call tech bros are up to at the moment. You know, the people who run the big corporations that are shaping our online lives are quite sort of present in our minds. Uh, So I thought I would look at how that's been represented in fiction. Very good. And uh, talking of men with a certain air about them... Mouldy Socks was the messiest little boy in the world. In fact, if you weren't concentrating, you'd be forgiven for mistaking his bedroom for a rubbish tip. 
The floor was covered in old banana skins and stale sandwich crusts, with a load of rotten old apple cores and sticky sweet wrappers dotted around. Mouldy Socks' toys were strewn all over the bed, and in the corner of the room festered a massive mound of multicoloured socks covered in multicoloured mould, hence the name Mouldy Socks. The pong was so pungent that it even made poo smell nice. Former Blue Peter presenter turned children's author Connie Huck will be here later on to tell us about her fearless fairy tales in our talking book slot. Right, time to focus on Memory Man. Amos Decker has had some tough breaks. As a young player, a violent blow to the head on the football field ended his pro career. But the injury left him with synesthesia, which means he sees letters and numbers in colour, and hyperthemesia, which causes him to notice every tiny detail of everything he experiences, and then not forget any of them. His powers took him into a successful career as a police detective, until tragedy struck. Sixteen months before we meet him, his wife and daughter were brutally murdered. Amos goes off the rails and loses his job. But a second horrific crime, a grisly school shooting in his hometown, brings him back into the fray. Decker's determined to catch the perpetrator, especially when it appears that there's a connection between the school shooter and the deaths of his own family. And the bodies continue to mount up, with the killer leaving coded messages for him. With his faithful former partner, Mary Lancaster, at his side, Amos sets out to solve both crimes using his extraordinary mental abilities, which are both a blessing and a curse. Originally a lawyer, David Baldacci is one of the world's most successful thriller writers. His 1996 breakout novel, Absolute Power, has been followed by over 45 adult titles that have sold over 150 million copies worldwide. Memory Man is the first in the Amos Decker series, to which David's just added the seventh book, Long Shadows. I spoke to him and started with the nature of Decker's psychological quirks. Were they based on a real case? I played football in high school and had a lot of friends who played, and I followed the game, you know, most of my life. But I read a book called Born on a Blue Tuesday one time, and it was about a guy who had hyperthymesia and synesthesia, so he associated days of the week with colors. Then I started reading other books about the mind and how it can be altered either at birth or through a traumatic brain injury, which unfortunately a lot of NFL players suffer that. And that got me thinking about creating a character, a detective who had that condition because of a traumatic brain injury. That's where Amos Decker came from. But also for you as a writer, I imagine, because you have to describe everything because Amos is noticing everything. How tiring is that for you as a writer? Does he meet characters and you kind of think, oh, I can't think of a single other thing he can notice? (laughs) What I tried to do was bring to bear my childhood love of Sherlock Holmes. I've read every one of those books a million times. And I still remember the very first one I read. It was a Reader's Digest condensed version of The Blue Carbuncle. And I finished that and I thought, I hope this Conan Doyle guy has written other stuff. (laughs) (laughs) And and, and luckily he had. So I like the description. I like thinking along that way. And I, I know that Conan Doyle would obviously go back to the end of the story and then build back through it and sort of lay out the clues he needed. And I did sort of the same thing with Amos Decker. But I'm a detail-oriented guy in any way. I was a trial lawyer for years, and details, you know, if you go into a court unprepared, you're going to get killed. So for me, it was all in the details, and I obsess over that stuff. 
Gavern Bennett was the clubber who chose the book. He has some questions for you. One is about the, the research. I mean, do doctors come up and kind of pull you up on things or are you absolutely watertight? Yeah, no, it's, it's sort of scorched earth for me. I go to every source that I think might be viable for me to understand it uh, in a better way. And I did find out from talking to doctors that, you know, the brain is always trying to keep functioning. So the way it functions is it repairs itself. And if it can't repair a damaged area, it rewires around that damaged area. And sometimes when it rewires like that, it'll venture into an area of the brain that we don't ordinarily use. And memory is one of those. And that's where his perfect memory came from. You start in this incredibly dark place where his his family are, are murdered. And then on top of that, you have the most traumatic of crimes, which is a, a school shooting. Did you have confidence in your readers that they could bear that much front-loading of darkness? What I wanted to do, and I knew it was dark. I mean, my God, a school shooting, young people losing their lives. Unfortunately, in our country, it happens every day. But I wanted them to really relate to this character. And what I wanted to do was, was them to focus less on what was happening around them, the school shootings and all the other stuff, and more of what was happening in this guy's mind. And at least they knew that as horrible as the school shooting was, this guy would be the one to figure it out and bring the people who did it to accountability. And I think that's what kept a lot of people going. And actually, it's interesting, in the new one, Long Shadows, it's like you're starting again. Was that sort of yes. deliberate to kind of reset the character, reset the series? It really was. because So the very first few chapters dealt with the end of a relationship that meant a lot to him. Um, and it was like he was born again. And who am I? What am I supposed to do? Do I even want to do this anymore? So this book was, you know, it had a plot. It had a mystery. It was, you know, a pretty cool, you know, whodunit. But it was also mixed with this guy trying to figure out if he could just keep going forward or whether he was just going to bag it and move on to something else. And for me, it was a terrific opportunity as a writer, not just to focus on the mystery, but focus on the character arc as well and the emotional side of Amos Decker and see what more I could pull out of this guy. And I wondered, he, he consistently has female partners throughout the series, sort of pre-series, in the series, and now a, a new partner. Um, why do you always pick women? Well, I think, you know, one reason is Decker is so annoying. If he had a male partner, the guy probably would have punched him out. <laughs> <laughs> I always like the male-female dynamic. It's more interesting. But I think more importantly, he needed someone who was a little bit more nurturing, a little more understanding, uh, and someone that would allow him to be who he was and but still be able to work with him. And I don't mean to stereotype, but look, I've worked with lots of people from in my life from different genders, and there is a difference. There, Mars and Venus is true in many respects, and because of just the way people are brought up, in, in, at least in the United States, uh, testosterone is alive and well in my country, and, but so is estrogen. And in terms of, you know, writing all these different series, how many books are in your head at any given moment? Right now, about four. <laughs> I mean, it's great. I just, I no idea how you do that. That's phenomenal. Yeah, I, I compartmentalize well. Again, when I was a lawyer, I was handling multiple big cases at the same time. So for me, when I would focus on one case, nothing else existed in the world except that, that case in front of me. And then I would move on to the next case and the same walls came up. And I haven't changed that work habit as a writer. I live in that world, and it's in my head all the time. So when I drop into a book and, and a bunch of characters, that is the entire sum of the world for me. Um, now, Gavern has a good question here. Uh, where do you think uh, Decker stands in the pantheon of great detectives? If there was a case, do you think Decker would beat Sherlock Holmes, Sam Spade, or Jack Reacher uh, in, in solving the case? Uh, that's, that's a great question. Um, 
if it were fisticuffs, he's not going to beat Reacher. <laughs> Reacher will, will <laughs> knock him out. I think he and Sherlock Holmes share a lot of the same attributes. I mean, Decker, his injury put him on the spectrum. I always thought, you know, back then they didn't talk about these things, but Sherlock Holmes is definitely on the spectrum. They both, you know, miss social cues. They don't really deal well with people. They don't have the same social interaction skills. Decker is relentless. Nothing else matters to him other than the truth. So I don't know if he could beat those other guys, but let me tell you, they're not going to outwork him. If I were a betting man, and sometimes I am, sometimes I have a flutter, um, I would put my money on Amos Decker. Listen, uh, David, there's some questions that we ask all authors, and I think the first one is really pertinent to you, because I know you do a lot of work with uh, adult literacy and getting that word out in America. So where did your literacy come from? How young were you? What was the book that unlocked the world of books for you? I guess the first book I remember really, I was hurting when I was away from the book and I wanted to get back to it to keep reading was a book called A Magic Squirrel. It was based on a Russian parable and I was seven or eight years old. That I think is what made me sure that books are going to be my best friends my whole life. And I love the book so much that years later, I went out and bought a first edition, you know, and I've gone back and reread it and it really brought back some of those old memories. Look, if it's very clear to me, if more people read books, we'd have a far better world. Mark Twain once said, if you think a little knowledge is dangerous, try ignorance. And obviously, you sell so many books, you mustn't think reading's in peril. <laughs> do you think, I mean, obviously, people still love stories. Yes. But do you think that people are going to ultimately kind of stop reading? People love stories that's never going to go away. It's just what is the format that they're going to be comfortable hearing or reading those stories. I start a new book, and I'm like, okay, uh, I'm competing against the TikTok generation. So do I have to capture their attention in a page, a paragraph, or a sentence? <laughs> do I have 30 seconds or five seconds? I don't like that You know, books have to be written that way. I understand attention spans have gotten shorter and shorter, and that's just the world we live in, unfortunately. So I always told people when I was a lawyer, a client never thanked me for giving them a really fast answer if it turned out to be wrong. So contemplate things, think about things. I don't have to reply to a text, you know, in three seconds later. Uh, the second book I want to know about is a, a book that you really rate, but you feel hasn't achieved a wide enough audience. Uh, what's that book? Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, Cast answers the question of why do people consistently vote against their own economic interests? And the answer is all they care about, they don't want to be on the bottom rung. So long as someone else is below them, then they don't care about their own economic welfare. And cultural issues will decide how they vote in places. Um, and we're seeing that today. I mean, my God, we are seeing that today. One party who actually does a lot economically to lift people up, and the people they help the most are voting against them. And they're voting against them because of cultural issues. And the other side is saying, don't worry, you will never be on the bottom rung. You'll be on the one right above that. And we're <laughs> going to be way up here with all the money. Yeah, it comes back to literacy, doesn't it? It does. Critical thinking, yeah. Yes. Uh, the final book I want to know about is a book you're jealous of, a book that you read that you thought was so good, you'd like to see your name on the front of it. Yeah, I, you know, if you'd asked me three or four years ago, I would have had a different book. Today, it would have been 1984 by George Orwell, because... You can't throw a dart in any country in the globe right now and not see the rise of autocracy. I, I look around today and I'm like, here come the brown shirts, here come the book burning, here come the book banning and all the other stuff. And that's exactly what Orwell wrote about. And right now, I would tell every person in the world, get, get a copy of 1984 and you'll see exactly what's happening. David Baldacci on the dark prescience of 1984, as well as his own brooding hero, Amos Decker. 
So, Alex, it's all feeling a bit male-heavy up till now, and you're going to do nothing to help that, are you? Actually, it's come out differently to what I imagined it would when I started to look in to the world of sort of technology as it is presented in fiction. It's not so tech bro as you thought it was going to be. Not as tech bro as I thought. One of the first things I thought of was a a novel from quite a long time ago called A Regular Guy by Mona Simpson, who I didn't realise when I read it but found out afterwards, is Steve Jobs' sister, although they weren't brought up together. And it's a novel about one of these sort of you know, tech giants who, you know, it becomes extremely wealthy and extremely powerful. But coming a little bit more up to date, I think there's a novel that, you know, we all know about, not least because it's been filmed, The Circle by Dave Eggers. It is told through a female perspective. It's uh, told through the eyes of May Holland, who goes to work at this place called The Circle in customer experience. She is so down on her luck. She's got no money and she is prone to that terrible crisis that affects a lot of people in America. Health insurance issues. Her parents really need the money and really need medical insurance. And so she takes the job and she soon becomes sucked into the world of the circle. And it doesn't play out like a thriller. It really does, actually. It becomes almost a sort of pantomime where she's kind of trying to work out what is actually at the heart of this organisation. Their big thing is this idea of going transparent. They are trying to persuade everybody in public life and then ultimately everybody in life that secrets are lies is one of the sort of mantras. It actually kind of blends in with the 1984 feel uh, of David Baldacci's work uh, that, that you should go transparent, that you should allow cameras to see everything that you do. But of course, we well know the problems with that. And those problems all become almost a kind of caper-like maze of, of plot lines. It's it's really, really enjoyable novel. And subsequently, just last year, I think, uh, Dave Eggers came up with a sequel called The Every, uh, in which May Holland, the, the woman at the centre of the circle, is the CEO of the corporation now. So there's a kind of twist there. Okay, tech fiction number two, please. Okay, another book by a woman. It's The Heart Goes Last by Margaret Atwood, uh, which is about a couple called Stan and Charmaine, who once again are enormously down on their luck. They're basically living in their car. They've got zero money and zero prospects. And then they hear of this programme, this town, model town called Consilience. And the offer is this. They can go and live for six months in a house totally comfortable, everything paid for in this created sort of gated community. But every other month, they have to go into the Positron prison system and they swap over with another couple. Weird setup, right? It's ve- I mean, Margaret Atwood, I don't know what goes on in her head. <laughs> it just seems quite a, quite a dark place. It does. And it becomes kind of ever darker when Charmaine, the, the wife in this couple, uh, kind of falls for the sort of alternate, the other man who is living in the house when she's not living it. I mean, we get into all sorts of byways of artificial intelligence, of uh, the the carceral system. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It came out seven years ago, and it's not really one of her best-known novels, even of of recent years. But I found it a kind of fascinating read, actually. And our final tech novel. Okay, so this is Kamala Shamsi's 
Best of Friends, which begins in a kind of, as it were, sort of non-tech sphere. It begins with these two friends in Karachi in the 1980s, when, you know, nobody's even got a mobile phone. They're living a, a very sort of analogue life, as it were. But they eventually come to be adults in London. And one of them has become a civil rights campaigner and is incredibly well known. The other has become a sort of funder, a venture capitalist specifically interested in the tech sphere. And once again, we get into this idea of surveillance, surveillance culture, uh, she, the, the woman who has made an awful lot of money out of doing this, is actually rather pro it because it means that, for example, you can track your your child as they go to walk in the park on their own. You can uh, do all sorts of useful things. But obviously her best friend, uh, who is a civil rights campaigner, knows that these things can be used to uh, extremely nefarious ends. And that's how the kind of tension between the two plays out. It's a really, really entertaining novel. It's very readable even though it's actually got some terribly sort of serious themes to it. All right, three great choices. Thank you very much, Alex. And if your memory is more sieve than saucepan and the books we've been talking about have gone clean out of your head, don't worry. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for the Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the titles we've mentioned. Right, let's get more acquainted with Memory Man. Here to discuss the book are fashion writer, Ladies Lit Squad founder and northerner in the South, Cherie Millington. Hello. Hello. Ex-Orkney Library, Twittermeister and now RSPB PR, Stuart Bain. Hiya. Hello. Hello. Hard-time librarian and full-time phone salesman, Jeff Watson, for it is he. Hello, sir. Hello there. And former teacher, now social worker and timeline maker, Gavern Bennett, who chose Memory Man for us. So, Gavern, what inspired you to bring Amos to the book club? Right. Well... If you want to read a book which completely makes you forget the cost of living crisis, forget where you are or who you are, this is the book. Um, Remember Man starts with a big bang. It's a kind of murder that we all dread, all right? If you haven't got a family, you dread this kind of murder. And then it gets big bangier. I don't know if that word even exists as it goes along because it goes into another murder. So there's a murder within a murder. But the most interesting thing about this book is the main character, Amos Decker because he's the detective to end all detectives. One of the things that irritates me about detective novels is sometimes you don't know how the detective does it, you know? It's like, how do you do it, Holmes? I don't know, Watson, I just, I observe, right? In this novel, it's absolutely clear why he's able to do it, why he can see the details. And also the villain in this novel is very complex. The villain is complicated. We'll get to the villain. Let's go to Stuart, because you do read crime. Crime and thrillers are kind of in your bag. What did you think of David Baldacci? Are you a fan of his work in general? Um, I don't tend to read a lot of American crime, but uh, back from my library days, I'm aware of how popular uh, Baldacci's books are. Um, Yeah, I really enjoyed this with some reservations. I thought it felt quite dated for a book that was only published seven years ago. I'm not sure when it was supposed to be set, but yeah, it really did start off with a bang. And I thought the mystery of Decker's family being murdered, the secret bunkers in the school, abandoned army bases, a homemade Robocop outfit. It had loads going on. Complete nonsense. (laughs) But yeah, I totally got involved in the story. And Cherie, you're no stranger to kind of big popular books, a big kind of, you know, blockbustery book. Uh, What did you make of this? Oh, 
It was very interesting. <laughs> when I was on holiday, I kept subconsciously leaving it on my sun lounger, <laughs> maybe hoping that it wouldn't come back, but it always did. Um, I feel like the author really hammered home the part where Amos Decker gets decked in the head and gets this amazing memory. I felt like 50% of the book was rehashing that over and over again. So in that aspect, he has a great memory, but just for one thing. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I know, there's a crib sheet at the beginning of the book which goes through the whole incident. And then it's like every 10 pages. Uh, Jeff, is this the sort of book you would normally read? No, normally when I go for detective stories, I tend to sort of go back to Dorothy L. Sayers or Agatha Christie or whatever. Uh, so this was actually the first modern sort of crime book I've read in quite a while. I've got to say, I did enjoy it. I thought it was a, a jolly good read. So, Alex, do you think any book that is essentially a murder mystery can sustain this many pages? <laughs> well, he does love a brick, but you have to say that he loves the pace. I mean, one of the things that's obvious is that, boy, do we dive in. I felt like I'd been sort of bashed up by the first 20 pages. I thought, what else is going to happen to this guy? Everyone's dead. He's living in a car. Oh, he hasn't even got a car now. He's living in a motel just about. He's clearly on on the road to extreme ill health. And the pace doesn't really slacken. So I must say... I think that even a book of this girth uh, actually can sustain it if it's this pacey. And I did find it quite pacey. And Stuart, could you see big differences when you, you know, when you're reading a British crime novel or a Scandinavian crime novel? Does this feel very different being American? I think the detectives in British Scandinavian novels do more actual detective work. I thought this was too gimmicky and he was over-relying on this DVR in his head. I found it really annoying after a while. It was quite an interesting characteristic to give the detective, but I don't think it's a particularly original characteristic to give him. And I felt it's a bit like Doctor Who's sonic screwdriver. It was just designed to get him out of tricky situations and move the plot on. Do you think that's fair, Gavern, that it's a, it's a gimmick too far in a book this length? No, you see, I, I read a lot of detective novels all the time. And a lot of the time, you don't know why the detective can do it. And also his ability is kind of like a curse as well. It's not just straightforward, you see. That's why I liked about it. Because I thought it was cool when I first read it. I thought, oh, imagine you could remember everything. And then when you get into the actual novel, you realise, no, actually, this is not a good thing. But do you not find it wearing the, the fact that he's got to constantly notice everything? As a reader, I kind of, oh, I do not want to know another thing about these people. But that was part of the beauty of it, you see, because the writer got you into Amos Decker's mind that the thing's tiring. It would tie you out after a while. And actually, I just thought, this is one detective I don't want to be. This is not working on a day-to-day level as a human being. So that that humanised him more for me. And they, and they do take him on a journey. Sheree, you didn't like it, but could you, as you were reading it, could you kind of think, I get why this man has sold over 150 million books? I was compelled to keep reading, I have to say. I kept saying to my friend on holiday, this is the worst thing I've ever read. I couldn't stop But I think his amazing powers of memory and the one thing he just couldn't remember was the murderer. (laughs) That's why I kept thinking, like, it's someone that you know and his powers didn't seem to help him at all. And I think he had amazing memory, but I don't think he was very intelligent. He wasn't clever enough to put all those things into use. 
And Alex, obviously there are, are lots of pleasures in this long book and twists and turns and shocks. But when it came to the end, mm -hmm. did you feel it was worth it or was it all a bit of a letdown? You know what? It became very convoluted and left you wondering a little bit as to what this sort of motive actually was. Uh, and I, I guess it's that that thing, MacGuffins, isn't it? It's things that, you know, when, when mysteries kind of are finally solved and you think to yourself, well, but I couldn't. I couldn't have known that, so I couldn't have worked it out. But I often find the the sort of denouements of very thickly plotted books a letdown because really the pleasure is in not knowing, isn't it? It's all about the chase rather than the completion in a way. Yeah, but also, Jeff, did you think this plot sustained? Did the central mystery sustain over that many pages? When you started reading the story, you kind of like thought, okay, so basically you know that there's going to be some secret passages involved somewhere. It was almost like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Sykes! Uh, it was a little bit surprising, the vast difference in how people were actually murdered when the parents got killed, the way that they were embalmed, tied to a chair, and wrapped in cling film. I was like, well, that's weird. The murders did actually sustain the story to a certain extent, yeah. And Amos Decker himself, I mean, to Stuart's point, he does seem like a man from a different era. Does does anyone disagree? Does everyone think he's a kind of a modern man? Yeah, he's, well, I'm a massive fan of Dashiell Hammett, right? Okay, Roman Chandler. And he's actually from that kind of era. But actually, I do like that kind of data detective anyway, if I'm being honest with you. You know, the guy walks into the room, and he realises he had a red sock. Why don't you work it out, Dutch? Your, your socks were the wrong colour today, right? I like that kind of stuff. So um, for me, it was just like, okay. But I can see where everyone else is coming from. But I think it's a very personal novel. That's what I like about it. That These murders are not like happen somewhere else. It's the school he went to. It's his family. So that kind of made it different for me. All right, let's open up the world a bit. Let's talk about uh, women in, in Memory Man, because uh, Amos Decker always has a, a female partner. Uh, do you think the women were well served? I might as well start with our, our woman, Cherie. Uh, what did you think of the, the role of women in this book? I mean, I don't think any of the characters were particularly well fleshed out. But yeah, I mean, most of the women died. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that he fleshed out particularly well. And his partner as well. She was a sorry old bag of bones, wasn't she, with a smoking <laughs> habit? All of the characters were grotesque, be they man, be they woman, all of them just gross. Uh, so, Alex, as the other woman in the club today, and, and particularly because of the, the, the way women are written in this book, is this book just for boys? I didn't think so. I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel myself reading it in that way because, I mean, I love a Bourne film, you know. I think, he, you know, to an extent we were talking really about whether there's sort of anything more than the kind of plot. And I do think, you know, he's evidently a very sort of vulnerable man. I mean, vulnerable because of the things that have happened to him, but also vulnerable because he can't look after himself in any way. He's living in a, in a very sort of emotionally reduced way. So I didn't find it a sort of unemotional book. Yeah, but but it is interesting, this thing, that, you know, we can all see the flaws in this thing, and yet it is very readable. It is very page-turny. Did you feel manipulated by it, Stuart, or did you kind of, did you enjoy turning those pages? So I, I listened to the audiobook. I didn't pick up the printed book at all, and as something to have on in the background, it worked perfectly. And 
I think the first half of the book works a lot better than the second half because I, I feel the pace of the story and then you sort of realise where the story's gone and I lost interest slightly. But I, I, I completely agree with what Cherie said, that none of the characters were particularly well said. Like, the, the police weren't particularly good at their jobs. Like, the, the guy that comes out of the police station on his way to the mass shooting and only during his conversation with Decker does he realise that's the school his grandson goes, well, if you're a detective, I think you should know. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be your first thought, wouldn't it? All right, look, let's get to uh, how likely you are to recommend this book to a friend or someone you know. Uh, let's start with you, Jeff. Uh, marks out of 10 for how likely you are to recommend this book to somebody. I give it around about a seven. It's it's not perfect, but actually, as a an example of an American detective novel, it's it's worthwhile. It's it's got its strong points. Okay, seven from Jeff. Uh, let's go to Stuart next. Uh, out of ten, how likely are you to recommend it? I think it works for what it is. It was a quick, easy read. Um, as long as you don't analyse it too much, I think you'll be quite happy if you like that sort of genre book. Definite issues, but I think I would give it a seven as well. Shree, do you know anyone who might want to read this book? Uh, uh, what, what's your score? Maybe like an incel or something. It's so juvenile. But I did invent a drinking game. Oh, yes. Every t- yeah. Every time he mentions being bopped in the head, take a shot. Every time he mentions seeing things in colour, take a shot. You'll get to page three and be out cold. Um, it's, I'll never read it again. I won't recommend it, but let's give it a three. A three? Okay, two sevens out of three. Gavern, has hearing this reaction changed your mind about this book? I'm going to stand up for this kind of book because I feel this book is sometimes underserved. You know, that kind of book which just drags you in. So I'm going to give it eight. And I would recommend it to a friend, definitely, because at least they won't be bored. Yeah. No, I must say, Gavern, I'm I'm really happy I read it because it's a world I do, I was not familiar with, and it's so huge and so popular. I'm I'm glad I got to kind of experience it. Uh, so that's Memory Man, David Baldacci. Let's find out what we're reading next time, and I think it's the turn of Cherie. It is. So this is a new book by a debut author. It's called Night Crawling by Layla Motley. And it's set in LA and it's about a young girl who's forced to do some nefarious things to support her family. And it involves a kind of crooked police force. She's got such a beautiful spare way of writing. And it's one of the best books I've read this year. So I hope that everyone likes it. Excellent. All right. Well, we look forward to reading that and hearing your thoughts on it next time. Uh, In the meantime, it just remains to say thank you to all my clubbers and uh, we'll talk to you along the way. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Now, time for talking books. And any resemblance to persons living or dead is purely coincidental. Things in the kingdom had gone from terrible to terribler. The sleep-deprived Chancellor, Neville Tightwad, was making more mistakes than ever and the kingdom was quickly running out of cash. The king knew it was time to sort out this insomnia, that's when you can't sleep, inducing situation once and for all. But maybe just after he'd had a little nap. Oh dear, sighed the king, when he remembered he couldn't nap. I can't even manage one wink, never mind forty of the blighters. Connie Huck is probably best known for being BBC kids show Blue Peter's longest-serving female presenter, 11 years of sticky-back plastic. 
But she's also a successful writer of children's books, including her fearless fairy tales, traditional stories reinvented for the 21st century, featuring characters like Trumpelstiltskin and Rap Unzel, heroes who are addicted to their iPad, or heroines who want to compete in Kingdom's Got Talent, and dealing with issues like equal pay, fake news, and even problematic chancellors. We spoke, and I asked where the idea for this fresh take came from. So we started reading all the classic fairy tales to our kids at bedtime and I realised how outdated some of them are. So I thought it might be quite interesting to update them for the 21st century. And some of these stories kind of are creepy and sinister in many ways. You know, they're not always happy endings. And I'm not saying that I'm all about a happy ending. You know, my husband writes Black Mirror, for goodness sake. (laughs) But um, I did think some of the tropes like damsels in distress and knights in shining armor were a tad outdated because, you know, we live in a world now where it's okay to be a knight in distress. You know, boys can be sensitive. And similarly, you can have a damsel in shining armor. I guess that was the sort of beginning of the germ of the idea. And when it comes to reading aloud, the doing your audio version of the Fearless Fairy Tales, do you kind of channel your bonkers mother reading, <laughs> reading to your own children voice? Especially with the fairy tales. I mean, they're such bonkers stories. Like, they are kind of a bit mad. There's one, for instance, Signor Spinocchio is this Italian newsreader, and he's got an Italian voice. And he's always talking about his nonna. If our mama and nonna was watching this at home and he says a little bit, everything is very elongated. So, I mean, I do love doing the <laughs> accents, but because there's a lot of humour in the books as well. So, for instance, there's one called Mouldy Socks and the Three Bears. And Mouldy Socks has Mouldy Socks because he's got no sense of personal hygiene. He never tidies his room. He's got a pile of Mouldy Socks in his room, essentially, because he's addicted to playing on his iPad. But basically, because he's playing on this iPad, he ends up sort of trashing the whole house. And there's sort of loads of, you know, in children's books, you get those sort of creak and smash and it's written across the whole page. I had lots of fun sort of doing all the onomatopoeia stuff. And, you know, you can really bring it to life. But then, yeah, sometimes I was told to rein it in almost. Um, But it sounds like that there are jokes for the kids, but there are also jokes for the adults who might be listening to this or reading to their children. Were you able to kind of differentiate those when you were reading? So, for instance, there's one called um, Snow White and the Five-A-Side football team about this football manager, Snow White, who really wants to be playing, but all the... People are telling her, you know, girls don't really play football. And so she decides uh, just to be a manager. But the five-a-side football team consists of Scary, who's very ferocious on the pitch, Baby, who's very good at dribbling, Sporty, who's born to play football, Posh, who's really doesn't like to get dirty at all. And which one have I left out? Oh, my gosh. Ginger, that's it, Ginger. Oh, yeah. There we go. Ginger he plays spice. quite gingerly. You know, I hadn't really thought about it while I was writing. I was just sort of having fun writing. And then, you know, my kids obviously didn't get that reference at all. So when I'm narrating, you know, they have no idea who the Spice Girls were. So, and, you know, there's also, they're playing in this five-a-side league and there's Golden Balls, who's the star player on the opposite team, the Bad Apples. And essentially, all of the references that I felt that, the kids weren't getting, but were just for the grown-ups. I just 
play them totally deadpan and normally. But now, of course, this is the wonderful world of audiobooks mm. where a parent can just press play. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> In your head, are parents sitting with their kids and listening to this book or are parents downstairs mixing martini while the child is upstairs? It does mean that, yeah, you're, you can go and have a martini if you want. And actually, the kids will often drift to sleep while listening because it's that sort of thing of white noise or having some sort of audio. I mean, I do it all the time when we're doing our Netflix viewing at night. And Fearless Fairy Tales, you know, there's only some here. There are so many fairy tales in the world. So are you going to revisit other fairy tales? Every time something happens in the news, I do think, oh, that could be a fearless fairy tale. Oh, that, you know, because we cover stuff like there's one, which is the gingerbread kid. And the gingerbread kid, essentially, his people are being eaten in fairy tale land. And so so him and his family escape across the sea in the boat to the UK where he gets bullied at school until the children realise he's the most interesting kid at the school because he has stories of giants up beanstalks and cats in boots and so on. So if you want just a funny story, it's literally only that. It's just a funny story. But if you wanted to discuss, I don't know, refugees or bullying or prejudice, it's quite a good springboard. All right, let's turn back the clock to the young Connie Huck. What age were you when you discovered the joy of of books and was there a particular book that you remember? Yes, yeah, so I was what we call a reluctant reader, believe oh, it or wow. not. So I hated reading when I was quite young because we were made to read a class book at school and it was The Iron Man by Ted Hughes. I hated it. It kind of freaked <laughs> me out. And it was the first book we'd sort of read at school as a class that didn't really have any pictures in because we were quite young. This is at primary school. And the only picture that was there was the one on the cover which was this really creepy iron man with red eyes it was just it really put me off for a long time and actually the book that you know opened the door to me um, was called Super Fudge by Judy Bloom and it was a sequel to a book called Tales of the Fourth Grade Nothing and it's about an American kid he finds out his mum is pregnant and he's already got a little brother who is a nightmare. And so his whole world is like, oh my gosh, there's going to be super fudge. His little brother's called Fudge. And I remember thinking, this is how adult books are. This is so descriptive and well-written and there's no pictures and it's really brilliant. And I remember thinking, yeah, that was the problem all along. I decided that the books I tried to read were too sort of childlike. And so I don't, particularly go in for sort of goblins and wizards and so on. And I think so that book was the perfect book for me because it's a very real story about kids that go to school and have mums and dads that argue and so on. And tell me this, so is it a, a fiction or non-fiction book that you would turn to in in sort of t- difficult times or a book you turn to for comfort? Would that be fiction or non-fiction? Often I will turn to something that is sort of grounded in truth. So, for instance, like it could be a memoir or it could be, you know, just somebody telling a story that they've observed. But if I am reading fiction, it often is kind of fiction that I can sort of relate to. And finally, Connie, is there a book that you love that you feel like not enough people know about? So you you recommend it to one and all? I love the book Everybody Died So I Got a Dog, which is by Emily Dean. You know what I was saying about books I can relate to, actually? So I do like books where there's a bit of nostalgia. Like, you know, I'm I'm heading towards my 50s, but, you know, I fondly remember things in the 80s and the 90s. And I like reading things set sort of 
in that time. Connyhawk on remembrance of times past, as well as her own fearless fairy tales. It is almost time to wind up this investigation, but making your way through the police tape, I see DI Audiobook Insider and Chart Maven Holly Newson with a full evidence bag of items to help us solve the mystery of what to look out for when it comes to the next big thing. Holly, what's Exhibit A? <laughs> uh, OK, Exhibit A. I'm, I'm Glad My Mum Died by Jeanette McCurdy. This started as almost a quiet success, at least in the UK, um, and grew through word of mouth into this thousands and thousands of five-star ratings sensation and became an international bestseller. Um, the audiobook is doing phenomenally and it's in the most read non-fiction chart, which always does a good job of showing what readers and listeners are really loving. As mentioned, it's non-fiction, a memoir by Jeanette, and it's about her time as a child actor, including, as the title suggests, a complicated relationship with her mum. Yeah, it sounds like one of those books, a lot of it's in the title. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <Yeah. laughs> but you do sort of want to know the details. Yeah, no, you're right. You do, you do. Uh, it is an interesting title. Uh, oh, no pun intended. What's the next clue? Do you see what I'm doing here? We're talking about crime. Mm-hmm, keep going, mm-hmm, keep mm-hmm. going. Yeah. Always love these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we saw how well Paris Fury's memoir did when it came out in 2021. And so, as you would expect, Tyson Fury's memoir, Gloves Off, is... Well, I'd usually say smashing it at this point. Can I still say smashing it? I don't know. Um, Well, it's doing really well. And I think there's a chance we'll see an uptick when the paperback comes out later this year. So keep eyes on the bestsellers to see it popping up in the biographies and those other genre charts. All right. And our final link in the chain. What have you got? Finally, a mention for The Bullet That Missed, a.k.a. Thursday Murder Club 3 by Richard Osman. Um, I still think of this book as Thursday Murder Club 3 because it was in the bestsellers in audio, print and ebook at pre-order before it even had a title um, and it has continued to just live there. Uh, I know I've talked about it before, but geez, this series of books is a powerhouse. Really, at no sign of slowing down. And yet I think, as he said, he's stopping. Is there one more before it ends or is this the end? Um, I feel like there's another one, but then again, I haven't seen it in the pre-orders, so maybe there isn't. Yeah, if it was in the pre-orders, <laughs> you'd have seen it. You would. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Holly. And don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to see if Jeff can remember the names of all his children without looking at his phone. He can't. So it just remains for me to say thanks for the memories to my own partner in crime, Alex Clark. Thank you so much for getting up early. You're so welcome. The rosy-fingered dawn is just creeping above the Empire State Building and I will go in search of Central Park coffee, I think. Oh, it's a picture using words. (laughs) Thank you, Alex. (laughs) Bye. Uh, please join us next time when, amongst other things, we'll be talking about Cherie's choice of night crawling and comedian and historian, who knew, well, it turns out everyone except me, Al Murray will be on parade telling us about the audio version of his new book, Command. Till then, happy reading and listening and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.